from the Exeter Book of Riddles, Riddle number 61. Often, a noble woman, a lady, locked me fast in a chest. Sometimes she drew me up with her hands and gave me to her husband, her loyal lord, as she was bid. Then he stuck his head in the heart of me, upward from beneath, fitted it in the tight space. If the strength of the receiver was suitable, something shaggy had to fill me, the adorned one. Determine what I mean. And the answer is, of course, a helmet. In Viking times, a thing was a gathering, a place where leaders and warriors could meet and talk. In the 21st century, our thing is a virtual place, where history academics and enthusiasts from around the world can come together to share knowledge. We're your hosts, Miranda Schmiederer and Lucas Norton. So hold on to your helmets for this episode of that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. We are just at the Jorvik Viking Center today, and we've got some really exciting news. Can you tell us what brings us here? Yeah, we are here because the York Helmet has just been installed in the gallery at Jorvik Viking Center. Oh my gosh, that's absolutely incredible. And thankfully, I was just able to have a really great chat with Dr. Sonia O'Connor. She was one of the conservationists who worked on the York Helmet right after it was pulled out of the ground. She was there basically at ground zero. It was absolutely incredible. I think that our listeners will really learn a lot from this interview. Hi, Sonia. Thanks for joining us. Would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners, please? Hello, I'm Sonia O'Connor. I'm an archaeologist and I worked with the York Archaeological Trust for a good 15 years before I went on to the University of Bradford to do research and a PhD and explore other areas of archaeological science. But when I was at the York Archaeological Trust, I was a part of the conservation laboratory under its head, Jim Spriggs. Amazing. So today we're talking about the York helmet, sometimes referred to as the Coppergate helmet. But for our listeners who are unfamiliar with the York helmet, we'll just start with the basics. Could you tell us, please, what the York helmet is? The York helmet, or the Coppergate helmet, as I've always known it, is an Anglian period helmet that was found in York many years ago. It was constructed, or is constructed, in iron plates riveted together and has fittings and decorations in brass over the top of it, including an inscription which runs from the front to the back of the top of the helmet and from side to side, brass, decorated brass eyebrows around the eye holes. It has a long nasal to protect the nose, which has intertwining beasts on it, again in brass. And it also has ear flaps and a curtain of iron mail around the back to protect the neck. Fantastic. Well, you said that it was found a little while ago. Can you tell us when and where it was found? Well, it was actually found after the Great Coppergate dig was over. Of course, the Coppergate dig only excavated about a fifth of the the area of the eventual development. But in 1982, it was under what we call a watching breach, where there were archaeologists on the site keeping an eye on what was happening with the construction or at least the the cutting of the foundations for the development itself. And there was a digger driver whose name was Andy Shaw, and he was levelling an area 
right under where the old Craven sweet factory chimney had been, I believe. And it had been assumed that the archaeology under that chimney would have been destroyed by the deep foundations that a chimney of that height would need. So Andy's cutting away a few centimetres at a time, very skilled way. And he hits something that sounds solid and it moves. And his foreman comes over and has a look and they think it's a stone. And when they get to look closely at it, they realise not only can they see what looks like gold and writing on it, but they appear to have a helmet, a complete helmet lying in the ground. So they call over to the archaeologists, everybody comes in, and it's just a bit of a shock, really. (laughs) And Jim has phoned up, my boss in the conservation lab, and he goes herring over there to see this, this helmet. All the other archaeology in that area has been pretty well destroyed by the building above it. And so it's just this area, which turns out to be a wood-lined pit with bits of debris in it, bits of other objects, um, bits of animal bone. There's a weaving sword, which is really rather interesting for a Viking period, I find, and a perforated wooden disc, which is something like a, a churn dash for working milk into butter, that sort of thing. But nothing much else that really relates to the helmet at all. It's quite extraordinary. So it looks like it's been dumped into this deposit at some point. That's amazing. So you say that Jim Spriggs was called in. You were working for the York Archaeological Trust at the time. Can you kind of set the scene for us? Can you tell us what happened? What was it like when it was found? When it was found, it was, as I say, remarkably obvious that it was a helmet. It was beautifully preserved. Most iron objects that come out of the ground are so covered in a corrosion crust that all you can say is, I've got a a lump of iron, a corroded iron here. But because of these deep waterlogged deposits that York has, and particularly this woodline pit, with it might have been the bottom of the well, the object appears to, when it was deposited, and that could have been deliberate, it went into sediments which had very little oxygen in them, lots of water, but very little oxygen, and it didn't corrode in the normal way. So we got very little corrosion on the brass, on the fittings and a very dense, detailed corrosion happening on the helmet itself. The dating of the pit, things like wood and things in the pit, make it clear that it's actually 9th, 10th century. But the object itself, the helmet, through the inscription, which is a Christian prayer and the name Oshare, actually dates it to something like 750 AD. So although we think of Coppergate as being a Viking site, this was an Anglian helmet. It was earlier. Wow. So you're saying that it was found in the bottom of, we think, a well. So do we think it might have been hidden there? It might have been hidden, yes. It was partly dismantled. The mail at the back appeared to be in the process of being removed. So whether there was a problem and somebody hid it thinking, I can get it back, and then never did, we don't know. Unfortunately, the the rest of the archaeology, as I say, in that particular area was completely missing. We don't have the top of this feature. We're only guessing that it's the bottom of something like a shaft. You say that the helmet, it dates from an earlier period than the stuff that it was found with. So do we think that something like this would have been passed down to different generations? Would it have stuck around for that long? Could have been. Certainly could have been an heirloom. And it was an object which the work that followed was able to show it actually uh, had quite a history. There was quite a biography to it. Things had happened to it in its life. It had been worn and used and repaired. So I suppose then once it was out of the ground and cleaned up, you say that you knew straight away that it was a helmet. But what is, was it obvious that it was this amazing kind of once in a lifetime find? Was it, was it obvious that it was special? 
Oh, yes. I mean, you, you don't find complete helmets every day. And in fact, very, very few helmets have ever been found. And certainly of the Anglian period, those that we do have were either fragmentary or highly corroded. So a lot of what we see today in things like the Sutton Who helmet or the Benty Grange helmet are the results of not just conservation, which is what happens to our helmet next, but also very heavy restorations sort of filling in the gaps. We didn't have to guess how our helmet was made, put together, how it was decorated. We didn't have to guess any of those things because we had the evidence in front of us. What we had to do was find that evidence because although it was beautifully preserved, the iron in particular was still covered in an external corrosion crust. And what's more is when we found it, as soon as it was exposed to the air, it was obvious to Jim that it was corroding in the air, that it was changing colour and oxidising. And we had to very, very urgently get it away from site and get it into storage where we could stop that corrosion from happening. While we thought about how we were going to deal with this object, because we didn't know what else was there, what was inside it, for instance, there could have been a leather lining, there could have been textiles, there could have been all sorts of things. Jim got it back to the lab and devised a nitrogen storage facility for it, which was basically a box with a perspex lid, uh, a plastic tub, through which we could actually pipe nitrogen to replace the oxygen and just stop that corrosion while we thought, how are we going to approach this? What are the questions we need to ask? It gave us time to consult with other conservators and other specialists who might have opinions about what we might find when we excavated the inside of the helmet. That's amazing that as soon as it came out of the ground, that oxygen started to corrode it straight away. You wouldn't think of water as helping to preserve something like iron. That's kind of counterintuitive, really, isn't it? Well, sort of, yes. But, you know, for for corrosion to occur, and corrosion had occurred on this object, uh, you need, obviously, the metal itself to corrode. But you also need moisture for the chemical reactions to occur. And a lot of these reactions are due to the interaction of that wet metal with oxygen. So if you can remove one of those elements, you can stop the corrosion or at least greatly slow it down. So to begin with, that's what we did. We got rid of the oxygen from the system. But we couldn't do that forever. Another way of dealing with corroding iron is to desiccate it, basically, to to use materials which will absorb the moisture so that the helmet is, the iron is too dry for the corrosion to occur. We do that later because that's a, that's a very standard way of storing and displaying iron. You can keep it in display cabinets, which are desiccated with a, with silica gel, basically. But um, we couldn't do that while it still had its contents in. We needed to be able to excavate that out. And my colleague, um, Judy Jones, did the excavation in, of the contents of the helmet, centimetre by centimetre, recording every stone, every bit of wood, everything that came out. There wasn't any evidence for a lining to the helmet, or at least evidence that had survived. There could have been something that had rotted away, obviously. So once the contents were out, we were then able to store it desiccated, and then I could take it out on a daily basis and start working away with my fine tools, cleaning away the corrosion crust so that we could actually see what detail was preserved on the helmet. And it's that detail that really makes this helmet special because it tells us so much about what had happened to the helmet, not just how it was made, but how it was used, the fact that it was used, and that it had wear and cleaning evidence and evidence of damage and repair. It's a helmet that really was used. 
Whereas things like Bentie Grange and Sutton Hoo were helmets which were associated with burials and may well have been ceremonial, may never have actually been used in anger. This helmet was a proper working helmet of that period of somebody quite important. That's amazing. You say there was no left evidence of a lining, but was anything actually found on the inside of the helmet once it was cleared out? we did find was uh, variations in the corrosion that had formed inside, which allowed us to develop some of the story of what had happened to the helmet, because there was right under the crown of the helmet, there was an area of corrosion which had no soil particles incorporated in it, which suggests that that surface was actually formed in an air bubble. And so the position that the helmet was recovered in was not the position that it had originally gone into the ground. It had been rolled over Certainly, it was rolled and moved by the machine that excavated it. But it's possible the helmet had been almost upright in the ground originally when it went in. Wow. So once it was desiccated and cleaned up and everything, what was the process for the helmet then? I know that a certain amount of restoration went into it as well, didn't it? Yes, it was restored eventually. And myself, I never thought that the restoration was necessary. We had basically 90% of the helmet was there. There was a bit of a gap around the back where corrosion had actually gone through the metal plates. And there was the odd bit of damage from it being found. Some of the brass fittings, for instance, had been knocked off and bent and some of the iron had been bent as well. But in a way, that's all part of the story of the helmet. Maybe put some of those pieces back where they fit, but the holes, the areas at the back were filled. And that's okay if your display of the helmet actually says, these are the original bits and these are the restored bits. But if it doesn't, then your viewer doesn't really know just how spectacular this helmet is because it's not like we had three or four pieces and we made the rest up from our imagination, you know. This helmet was virtually complete. I think the public would be quite happy to look at an object which is damaged and a story that tells you what we know about that damage, what actually tells us about the helmet. Uh, even if some of that damage is really very, very recent. But that's my opinion. (laughs) Fair enough. What about ongoing conservation? I imagine something like this requires a fair amount of care, even once it's it's conserved and restored. Uh, Yes, it does. It needs to be kept dry always, I'm afraid. So the monitoring of the conditions in its storage or in its display are absolutely crucial. It's like a, a lot of museum work. If you don't maintain your museum, you suddenly find you've got problems. So it's just one of those things that is hidden, I think. The public don't always realise how much museum conservators actually have to do in the way of monitoring and maintaining environments which are just right for that sort of material, whether it's a textile which mustn't get too dry or too wet or uh, an iron object that's got to be kept dry or, or whatever it is. There are very few materials out there, apart from maybe ceramics, where they don't interact much with environment, with the air around them or the moisture in that air and how that changes or the temperature. Most museum objects have survived well and are preserved because um, we take a lot of care out of making, making sure that the environment they're in is just right for them. That makes total sense. Well, I suppose that brings us to why the York helmet is so unique. Why is it so exceptional? Why, however many decades later after it was found, are people still so fascinated by it, do you think? I think um, partly because it gives us this um, fantastic idea of what helmets at this period might look like. I was very fortunate 
when I, I worked on this helmet because I actually got to go with other researchers to look at the equivalent helmets in Norway and Sweden. And it very quickly became clear that not only were a lot of those when they were found very incomplete in comparison, obviously, to our helmet, but the way they had been restored was wrong. Wow. And we, all could, we could only know that because we'd got pretty well a complete helmet with all the fittings in the right places. So we were able to actually spot where people had made reasonable decisions about where fragments might go, but incorrect decisions because they didn't have the evidence we had to work with at that time. So that was one of the things that made that helmet really important and exceptional. Uh, the beautiful preservation, not just that it was a, a complete helmet, but we had the, this fantastic level of preservation of detail on the surface where we could actually see when I removed the corrosion crusts from the outside and revealed the information that was preserved in what we call replacement corrosion. That's the corrosion that's actually replaced the metal itself. When this is really good, you can find on knives, for instance, you can find sharpening marks on knives from the Coppergate site, for instance, which you, you wouldn't see from non-waterlogged sites. In this case, we've got all sorts of evidence, both from that and from the iron and from the brass, of cleaning, of damage, and in the mail in particular, evidence for repair. And it's the mail that really is exceptional to my mind. I mean, we, we, we have beautiful artwork on it. We have all sorts of things on the rest of the helmet. But the technology that went into that mail, eight millimeter rings, one millimeter diameter wire with rows of rings, which are, uh, the wire's been lapped over, a little hole punched through, a little rivet put in and closed. Those rings alternate with rows of rings which aren't lapped and riveted, but are far heat and pressure welded. And this is phenomenal work. And to most people's minds, it's the, the golden looking bits and the, the brass or silver or gold on an object that people rave about. But for me, that is the star of this helmet. And the preservation of it was exceptional. And we were able to do radiography, which is something I haven't mentioned at all, which allowed us to look inside the way the helmet was put together. And uh, we used that to look at these rivets as well. And it's beautiful iron wire. It's, it's so beautifully put together. Uh, I could rave on about it for hours, so don't let me. <laughs> That's amazing. Is there anything that you would like our listeners to know specifically about the York helmet? Oh, I'm often asked, who was Oscar? Was it his helmet? We don't know. In the literature from the period, without the name is mentioned, it was perhaps not an uncommon name. But we do know that the script on the helmet, the, this prayer, this, this sort of abbreviated Christian prayer, appears to be Northumbrian script. So we're talking about something that's from this part of the country, basically somewhere up in the north. And it's that that's allowed us to date it as well, is the, the style of the lettering and so on. But as to the man himself, I don't know, we'll ever know if it was his helmet, whether he made the helmet, whether uh, he commissioned it, whether the chap fought for Oz hair. Those are things we, we don't know. But we do know this to say that this, this helmet really did see action in the field. And uh, we, we have what appear to be knife cuts on the nasal. We have a dent in the helmet that appears to be made by uh, the uh, sort of square section end of a, a hammer-like weapon. And the, the mail has been repaired as well, albeit rather amateurishly compared to the making of the mail, which suggests to me that this is running repairs in the field, basically. So this, this object, for whatever reasons it was kept, it had a history. 
And it may well have been a prized heirloom that somebody was was trying to hide from being taken away and intended to come back and get it. Who knows? That's what I imagine anyway. Well, thank you so much for telling us a little bit about the York helmet. Our listeners will hopefully be able to see it very soon for themselves at the Jorvik Viking Center. And as well, I believe that you're doing a talk about it for that Jorvik Viking thing 2022, aren't you? Yes, Jim and I are coming together, a bit of a reunion, as we've both retired now from our fields. And we're going to talk about the helmet and uh, give you a bit more detail about the helmet and what we learned from it and how it's really changed, I think, perceptions of those sorts of objects at that time. Special thanks to Dr. Sonia O'Connor for being our guest. I learned quite a lot, Lucas. Did you learn anything new about the helmet from that interview? Yeah, definitely. I've learned I've been pronouncing the name wrong on the helmets <laughs> for years. I, uh, I, I learned that as well. Like in a previous episode, we called him O'Share. Yeah, I think when I've shown the replica helmet in the gallery, I've used that same pronunciation and people go, oh, sounds like a very Irish Anglian, doesn't it? <laughs> so Oshare, that's the name I'll use from now on. I, I think that's really good to know. I was absolutely floored by that. Did you learn anything else that you found interesting? Well, I found the conservation very interesting. The fact that it required such immediate conservation after being recovered made it sound a bit like ER or something. (laughs) I think Jim Spriggs' nitrogen storage facility sounds a bit like putting the helmet on life support. (laughs) A lot of the other artefacts found from Coppergate, things like leather shoes, they could be stored in like a wet, dark container for years and years and years, nice and safely before any proper in-depth conservation was required. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely amazing. And it's it's funny because when you see like archaeology or, or conservation in movies, usually people just have like a little paintbrush and just give something a little bit of a dust off. But the fact that all of this kind of work went into it, even after it was dug out of the ground, I find absolutely incredible. Yeah, there's so much work is required to continuously upkeep and conserve these objects. I know that our team of conservationists are constantly nipping into Jorvik, checking out humidity levels, light levels, things like that. It's not just plonked on a shelf and left there forever, <laughs> is it? <laughs> well, what about the fact that it's the York helmet? It's it's associated with a Viking dig, but it's not a Viking helmet. What did you make of that? Yeah, it's so interesting to have such an amazing Anglian period object. I think when we talk about the history of York, we get very focused upon it as a Roman city and then as a Viking city. And that period in the middle doesn't get a huge amount of attention usually. We do have our objects from that period, but most of them are things like, of course, broken pots and things like that. It's amazing to have such a beautiful object from that time period. Let's give the Anglians some praise. <laughs> well, and I think the fact that all of this detailed work went into it shows that like, there was this level of craftsmen in this area at that time. I just find that absolutely incredible. What about the fact that they had to do kind of a mini excavation inside of the helmet? Yeah, that sounds very cool. Definitely my kind of excavation indoors where it's warm and dry. (laughs) (laughs) And I think the part that definitely needs a little bit of discussion is the chainmail. I mean, I love the chainmail. I I was absolutely floored to find out how much work would have gone into something like that. Yeah, chainmail is a work of art. We often show a replica of the helmets to visitors at Jorvik, and they're drawn like magpies to the shiny gold-coloured bits. And I'm going, no, 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 ignore those bits. Look at the chainmail. It's so cool. (laughs) 
And I think my favorite part of the episode was just Sonia. She mentioned that after they found this helmet, they basically went to visit other helmets. And they found out that a lot of the assumptions that were being made about helmets were wrong. This helmet that they found really paved the way for for all that we now know about helmets and stuff at that time. I think that's just amazing. Yeah, it's a real revolutionary find. We occasionally talk about the fact that this many Viking helmets, this many Anglo-Saxon helmets have been found. But the quality of preservation in each of them varies so much. If you have the York helmets alongside other ones from the same time period, you can see just how amazingly well preserved this one is. And I don't know about you, but I'm really looking forward to that live event, the the talk between Sonia and Jim. Yeah, I can't wait to see what else we learn about the helmets. A big thanks to Dr. Sonia O'Connor for chatting with us today. And thanks to the York Museums Trust for loaning us the York helmet. And to see the York helmet for yourself on display at the Jorvik Viking Center, visit jorvikvikingcenter.co.uk. Once the helmet leaves the Jorvik Viking Center, you'll still be able to find it on display at the Yorkshire Museum. To get tickets for the chat between Sonia and Jim, make sure to check out jorvikthing.com. Tickets will be released shortly. Thanks for listening to our second episode for that Jorvik Viking Thing 2022. But we still have so much left in store, so please hit subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Don't forget to rate and review that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast on your podcast app. And if you enjoyed the show, please share us with a friend. It's the best way to help support your favorite Viking podcast. Thanks for listening to that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Transcripts and chapter markers are available on jorvikthing.buzzsprout.com. That Jorvik Viking Thing podcast is a production of the Jorvik Group and York Archaeology. Hosted by Miranda Schmiederer and Lucas Norton. Researched by Lucas Norton, Ashley Fisher, and Miranda Schmiederer. Produced by Ashley Fisher. Sound designed and edited by Miranda Schmiederer.